um, about a month ago, we got to celebrate Graham's second birthday. And it was, it was a beautiful time to get together and celebrate. And, and so we reflect on, on raising kids and all the things that come with raising kids and the mess of it. And, and, and in the midst of that, one of the things that we were thinking about as we we're about to have a second child is, do we really even remember what it was like as an infant, even two years ago? And we don't. Like, he's substantial. I can pick him up and I can throw him on a couch. <laughs> I can't do that with a new child. I'm trying to remember what it felt like to hold something so small and innocent and helpless. And I realized I couldn't. But, but having kids really has been a shaping thing for me. One of the things you realize really quickly, whether you've been a parent for 30 years, 40 years, or two years, or even three months, is it, it, there is no manual for this, right? There's no, no one, they don't send you home with like, like your car has a 200-page manual, your baby has none, right? You just kind of figure it out as you go. Uh, and one of the things that you see very early on is that that kid needs you for everything, and so Graham, I remember him sitting there, and it was just this weird thought that apart from Britta and I's intervention, like he, he literally sleeps and poops, and that's it, right? No eating on his own, no nothing on his own. And so it was just this beautiful thing. So being a parent shapes a lot of the things that you look at when it comes to how you view life and the world around you. What I didn't expect is how much having a child would shape the way that I look at Scripture and the way that God works and the things that he says and one of the ways, one of the passages that I really have been shaped by just being a parent for the two short years that I've had the privilege of being one is the passage we're looking at today. And it's the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. See, so Luke 18 is, is towards the end of, of his teaching. We're really close to getting to the arrest and trial and the passion narrative of Jesus and in the middle of this, this time, it's this kind of series of teachings and parables relating to the kingdom. Um, if you remember way back when Paul started as our transitional pastor, we talked about the kingdom some. And some of these passages had come up at that time. But we're looking at the kingdom teaching. And right before this, we have a parable of the persistent widow where, the, where Jesus is teaching about the importance of persisting in prayer. It's important that we persist in our prayer and that we hold steadfast. And so this passage today kind of comes off of that a little bit. And it starts to talk about prayer some more, but it's about more than that. If, last, if the last passage was about the fact that we should be persistent in our prayer, the passage today when it comes to prayer is talking about the attitude and posture that we should have in the midst of our prayers. But it's even bigger than that. Because really, today's passage is about who gets into and who does not get into the kingdom of God. So if we're Christians, it's probably a good one to listen to. Right? Because I think we all want to know, what, what is it that gets us entrance to the kingdom? It's this weird kind of structure where he talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And at the end of it, he appends, there's this passage on, let the children come to me. We, most of us, if we've been in church for a while, we've heard that, right? The children are trying to get to Jesus. The disciples hold him back. And Jesus says, no, like, let the children come to me. And it comes right after the parable of today. And it seemingly doesn't add up a whole lot. Like, there's no reason to believe that they are related. But, in fact, they really are. And so, for me, when I read that children's passage, he says, to get into the kingdom of God, to inherit the kingdom, you have to come at it like one of these children. 
Right? We've heard that before. You have to come at the kingdom with the attitude and the mindset. Somehow, if we're going to be in God's kingdom, we have to do it like children. And I always wondered, well, what exactly does that mean? Because I watched my two-year-old at home. I don't know what behavior of his I'm supposed to emulate <laughs> in order to get into the kingdom of God. Like, is it like if I throw tantrums, I get into the kingdom? Like, what? What is it about behaving like a child? Right? We read that and we're like, oh, maybe the innocence of a child. We're going to look at exactly what it is about the nature of a childlike faith that we have to possess to get into the kingdom. And the parable today helps us do that. So let's take a look at it. It is Luke 18, 9 through 17, and it reads like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus tells him, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then the children's passage. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So it starts with this, this he told this parable to some, right? Who are the some? Well, the audience in a lot of ways included the, the, the disciples and then all the people that kind of followed him around to hear him teach. And so you would have had just regular folks in there. You would have had the disciples that are his 12. You would have had probably some religious leaders because they like to follow him around and trip him up whenever they could. So they were always listening, never hearing, but always listening. So you had this kind of mix of people and he doesn't tell them specifically who this parable is aimed at. Right? It's not like he's sitting with just his 12 and he says, all right, you guys listen, no one else. He just says, this passage is towards some. Well, who are the some? Some who trusted in themselves. Right? The, the, the word trusted that's used in here, it's more than just a, a kind of generic trust. It is, a, it, it is a signifier that says to those whose hope, ultimate hope, was really in themselves that they were righteous. So he's telling them, this parable, by the way, if you're wanting to know whether you should listen, for all of, all of you who kind of have any kind of sense of trust in your own righteousness, right? And so we think of that immediately and we go, Pharisees. But he's not saying specifically, all right, Pharisees, listen up. Anybody who fits this bill, right? You ever heard sermons start out with, you know, have you ever felt lonely? And if you've ever felt lonely, you think, all right, I should, I should listen, right? To some who... All of us should probably pay attention to this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, yeah, to those who trusted in themselves. And then it says, and treated others with contempt. Now, I don't know about you. The word contempt 
can be a whole kind of broad swath of meanings. The word that is used here in the Greek, it's exothenautos. And it means despised. Contempt is a, is a weak translation of that. It means despised. And so what it's saying is to those of them there that trusted in their own righteousness and despised others. Right? So it's, there are those there, they're so trusting in their own stuff and they, they have this way set out to how they are supposed to live. They are the ones that keep the law. It's the Pharisee that we'll get to later, right? I, I hold on to all these things. I do all these things. They're trusting in their own actions and anyone who doesn't commit to those same actions, who doesn't have that same outward portrayal, those are despised. The implication of the word is that anyone else who doesn't fit their bill of what righteous should mean is considered worthless to them. And we'll see that play out when we dig into the prayer of the Pharisee here in a second. But we have this, this, this trust word, and then they go to pray, and those two men could not be more polar opposites. The Pharisees are the most righteous religious people. Not only that, but they are at the top of the Jewish social structure. Right? They're the elites. If you're in middle school, they're the plastics. They're the cool kids. Everybody wants to be them. No one gets to be them. They're their own little clique. They have figured out all the laws. The Pharisees would take the laws of the Lord and they would study them to the, to the letter and then they would add and heap and stuff on top of it so that every single thing they did, if there was a law that says tie this, they would tie this and that. If there was a law that says fast twice, they would fast ten times. And then they expected that everybody else would do the same or you're not righteous. So they, they have this fenced system built around the word of God that adds way more to it and they are considered the uber-righteous. Everyone wants to be righteous like the Pharisees. Then we have the tax collector. How hated are tax collectors? Now, we think of like the IRS showing up at our house, like if an auditor came, we'd probably hate them pretty badly. Tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. They were the worst of the worst. They were worse than the dirt on the bottom of your feet. Tax collectors were hated double. Number one, tax collectors worked for the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And so if you were a Jew and a tax collector, you were a traitor to your people. If you're like a guy, if you were a Jewish person in World War II who spied for the Nazis, that's how hated you are. So they're hated for being just being employed by Rome. And on top of that, most of the time, tax collectors were known as pretty dishonest people. That's not to mean that every tax collector was not was a fully dishonest thief. But what they would do is they would take more tax than they had to to make themselves wealthier. So Rome would say, hey, I need you to charge 20% tax to everybody. And they would go to everybody and say, I need 60% tax. They would keep the rest for themselves. That's why when Jesus comes to Levi, who becomes Matthew, the tax collector, right? He's got this. He's got his table of money. And when he says, follow me, he leaves the whole table back. And he just they were the lowest of the low. Everybody hated the tax collectors. They were the worst. The worst. No friends. You were eaten by yourself at the lunch table every single time if you were a Pharisee. And so these two polar opposite men are told, we both see them in the temple and they come in and they pray. And then we have this comparison of the two people praying. So first, the Pharisee. He stands by himself and he prays thus. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, 
And then he lists a couple examples, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give all my tithes of everything that I get. So everything I get in, I tithe on it perfectly. He throws this, this prayer out and he stands alone. And, and the implication is that he's standing in a public place. So there in the temple, he's right there in that front row. We're good Presbyterians, so no one sits in the front row, unless you play the piano, which is just easier to come up, come up here, right? No one ever sits in the front row in a Presbyterian church, other than the pastor or staff. But he's sitting right there in the front. And when it comes time to pray, that's what he, he stands up, and he probably faces people even, so he can see him pray. Dear Lord, thank you that I'm not like all these other people. I'm just better than all of you. Especially that guy in the back. Right? And then he starts to list all these things. He stands there. If, if, the NIV actually translates this better. Uh, it says in the ESV, he prayed thus. The NIV translates it, he prayed about himself. There is nothing in this prayer that has anything to do with God other than thank God. God, I thank you. And then everything after that has zero to do with the Lord whatsoever. Right? Everything is an I statement. Do you ever go sing like worship songs where all the, song, all the lines in the worship lyrics are all about me, 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 me? I will do this, I will do that, I will. It gets a little irritating. You start to think of yourself, are we going to talk about the Lord in our worship ever? Right? He doesn't do that. He talks about himself. Thank you that I'm better than everybody here. Right. Not like other men. So here we see, earlier we talked about contempt and despised. Here we see this played out. So the Lord, uh, he's praying to the Lord, and he says, thank you that I'm not like these other men. And then he starts to list examples of all the other men. And he says what? Unjust, extortioners, adulterers. What's the implication? If you aren't righteous like me, you must be one of these things. Right? He's not saying there's me that's best and there's someone else below that's a little better. No. You're either righteous like me, or you're one of those adulterers, and you know, there's this whole category of people that he puts them in. So if you weren't considered righteous, you were despised. You were worthless. And then he takes it one step further. So he lists this whole thing, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and then, or even like this tax collector. What's the implication? The tax collector is worse. It's one thing to be a swindling, extorting adulterer that never has a shred of justice in your bone. Uh, but at least it's better still than being a tax collector. That's like the worst of the worst. And he says it out loud. And imagine being the tax collector sitting in the back, <laughs> hearing this. Having your gut just churn. Right? And then he starts to puff himself up. What's the two things he says? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Guess what? The law doesn't say that they have to do either of those things. He's, he's bragging about the fact that he goes above and beyond what the law requires. The law of the land at the time didn't require tithe on every single thing you got in. There were certain things that you were to tithe on, but not every single thing. The Pharisees would get a sack of rice, and they would look at how much of it should be temp You know, they would make sure that as much as possible should go tithe so they did nothing, right? Nothing that you come in contact with that you get from anybody else isn't tithed on, because God forbid you should miss one shred of righteousness. And so they were puffed up on that. And the tax collector to him was the most despicable human being that ever could step foot. It was an offense to the Pharisee that he was even in the temple. Why is he even here? 
I wouldn't even walk on the ground that he walked on. Then we get to tax collector. His posture is very different. He also is standing by himself, but it says he stood very far off. He's in the place of least honor. He's over in the corner by himself, hoping that no one will look back at him. And his prayer is short and sweet and through the point. This is the kind of prayer you want at dinner so that the food's hot when you're done. <laughs> I have a friend, one of my dear, dear friends, Tim, from college. When he prays, it's like a 20-minute thing. In the cafeteria at school, we'd never let him pray for dinner because it'd be cold by the time he'd be done. One time while he prayed, we ate all his food and left. <laughs> and when he, Amen. There's no one there. This is short and sweet and to the point. He prays simply this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says that he can't even look at heaven. His, his posture is so full of humility that he can't even imagine looking up at the God he loves. And he beats his breast, which we don't understand. Back in, in Jewish culture, that was just a sign of kind of, of humility and shame. He hangs his head low, and in shame, he just proclaims, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so his prayer is so different. He says nothing about himself because he has nothing to boast in of himself. And he knows it. He's got nothing. He shows up, stands before his God, and just says, have mercy on me. I got nothing. And then the only thing he does say about himself is that he's a sinner. That's what I bring to the table. That's all I got, God. Do something with it. <laughs> Please. And the word mercy that we see here has this weird connotation with it. Uh, the word mercy used in this passage shows up two times total in the New Testament. The first time is in this passage, and the second time is in Hebrews 2.17. And in both times, the word means propitiation, which is a fancy way of, of penalty for sin. Like it's the, the penalty paid. So when he's asking for mercy, not only does this guy have humility, but he actually understands exactly what he's asking for when he asks the Lord to have mercy on him. He understands who Jesus is. Do you get that? He's saying, I, I need you to have mercy on me in this way. I need you to pay for this. Because I can't. Because I'm just a sinner. This tax collector gets it. Right? All through the Gospels, we have these themes of those who should get it and see, not seeing. And those who should never be any, in any way understanding, being able to get it. Right? We have Jesus when he goes to the Samaritan woman and she understands and she goes and gets a whole village. Whereas in others, aren't able to see. This guy sees, and in all humility, he says, Lord, I need you to pay for the mess that I am because all I am is a sinner. So please, please do so. That's all I got. I got nothing else. Before we move on, it's worth mentioning something. We actually, in this passage, we get no single instance of mention of any unrighteousness on behalf of the tax collector. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the Bible says he's not, he's sinless, because he's not. Only Jesus is sinless. But the, the passage doesn't mention it. We don't know if he's a dishonest tax collector. For all we know, he could be an honest guy. We don't know. There's a potential that this guy is actually technically more righteous than the Pharisee, because we know the Pharisee messed up. And so the great irony is the one who comes in humble 
probably perhaps actually has, has more worth, so to speak, than the one who exalts himself. This passage drips with irony, right? And the Pharisee ironically prays, and if you think about his prayer, if you look back to it, he doesn't actually ask the Lord for anything. We'll get to that in a second. The tax collector asks for mercy. The Pharisee just talks about himself and then, amen. And so here's the answer. Jesus comes and renders the verdict on both of these people. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the second guy who gets to go home justified. And here's the beauty. Both of these guys in their prayer get exactly what they want. The Pharisee asks for nothing and gets nothing. The tax collector asks for mercy and is justified as he goes home to his house. And so this passage ends with the Pharisee empty-handed and the tax collector justified. And then we go to this thing about children. And it's, it's important to note that the, sh- the shift in verse 14 that we see, or 15 that we see, is from parable to real life. And so the way that the, way that the narrative of Luke works is that the, the whole Pharisee tax collector is a parable. It's not like there's actually a Pharisee and tax collector standing in their midst as Jesus is teaching. He's telling a story to illustrate a point. But now we get back to reality. So we're told in the midst of this, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And so we can presume that the audience is pretty much unchanged. In the midst of all this teaching and all these things that are happening, the Lord is is there, Jesus is teaching, and they're bringing children to him. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know why the disciples stopped the kids. Maybe it's because they were acting up in church and they were too loud and Maybe they thought that Jesus would want them to be kind of kept in the back and quiet down. But for whatever reason that they're stopping them, Jesus doesn't like it. And he rebukes them. And he says, no, let him come to me. Clearly, according to Jesus, the disciples didn't get the parable that he was just trying to teach. And so he, he tells them, no, let them come to me. And then he says, because by the way, to such, for such belongs the kingdom of God. I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child is never going to be able to enter it. He makes this staggering statement. So if we're never going to get to enter unless we're like children, what does that mean for us? See, I always read this passage in a mistaken way. I don't know about you. Growing up, I always thought, well, unless we have the innocence of a child or, you know, the ignorance of the child or the blind trust of a child, that's not it. This passage shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew and Mark, there's one word that is used for children throughout this whole passage. That's all it is. It's just one single word for children. It's brefe. Uh, Sorry, it's pedia. It's the word for child. Luke does something a little different. The first mention of children in Luke 15, he uses brefe, which is infant. And so instead of saying that the, inf- that the children were being brought, it's the infant that was being brought in Luke's translation. And I think when we think of infant rather than just children, it gives us a bit of a clue as to what the notion is. Because I go back to the first few months of Graham's life. What did I say? When Graham was tiny, there is literally nothing he could do by himself. I could put him down somewhere, And I could walk away, 
And 10 minutes later, when I came back, he was still there. By the way, man, I missed that time. How nice it was. Now I put him down somewhere, and he's hitching a ride in a van. But there's an innocence to a child in the sense that he has no ability to do anything. He cannot take care of his most basic needs. He can't soothe himself. He can't eat by himself. If, if Graham was left in the first few months of his life, if he was left to his own devices for more than an hour or two, he wouldn't make it. As an infant, he is 100% for every need completely and utterly dependent on Britta and I for his every sustenance and ability to go anywhere. He wants to move, he needs us. He wants to eat, he needs us. He wants a diaper changed, he needs us. He wants help getting to sleep. You ever try to put a two-month-old infant in a crib and just walk away? It doesn't work very well. They're not going to go to sleep. That comes later. How glorious it is. But he can't do anything. It is in that way that we have to come to the Lord. We have to come to him like a child in the sense that we present ourselves and admit that aside from his intervention, apart from him, there is absolutely nothing that we can do for ourselves. We don't have merit. I don't care how much you fast or tithe or work for the church or give of your time and and talent or if you're here every Sunday in worship, and even in COVID, you didn't miss. You, you watched it out online outside of our doors, even though it was locked, because you wouldn't dare miss a day of church. I don't care how righteous you think you are. Unless you come to God like an infant, admitting your complete incapability, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. That's what the Lord is telling us. It's not with some naivete or innocence or blind trust, that's part of it too. We should, have, we should trust the Lord that he's good. Not blindly, because, but because we see. Because the Spirit enables us to see the truth of the gospel. Right? It's not those attributes of kids. It's the helplessness that we ought to have. That's how we come to him. And when we do, and we say, nothing. I have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord picks us up, and he says to us, that day you go home justified as well. So how do we take this into our modern day? Because here's, here's what I think most of us do when we read this passage. We read this passage and we, the, the challenge is that we don't pray like the Pharisee, right? Isn't that one of the first things we think about? I mean, who amongst us here, have you known anybody that has gotten up actually in church to say, man, thank the Lord I'm not like Betty in the back. Sorry, Betty. <laughs> it's just a placeholder name. <laughs> You're great. But, but that's, we don't do that. And so we have a hard time with a passage like this because we don't really see a level of self-righteousness like the Pharisee portrays. It's, it's an extreme example, right? I think rather than resonating with the Pharisee, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us probably read this passage and resonate with the tax collector, right? And so stay with me. At least, at least this is what I've done. Tell me if you're the same. Generally, I'll read something like this, and I'll go, man, yeah, I'm, we, need, we need to all be like the tax collector. You know, I do that. Oh, that Pharisee is, man, what a wicked, self-righteous jerk. And then we start to say something like, man, you might even say to yourself in your own heart, man, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. I don't pray and boast like that. I give without talking about it. 
Look at me. Do you see what happens? Even if we're not blatantly like that, our hearts still deceive us. Most of us read this and we think, thank God that I am not crazy like that guy that gets up and just boasts about himself. I have a certain sense of humility about myself. And the moment we do that, guess who we are in the story? Do you see the subtle? For us, it's more subtle, but it happens too. We, every day, what we do, we, we compare ourselves to the other Christians in the room, right? Yeah, I mean, I have a long way to go. I have so much growth to do as a follower of Christ, but yeah, at least I'm not her. She doesn't have anything together. <sighs> How do we live a passage like this out? We only have one choice. You've got to stand in humility in the back. Don't go actually in the back. That would be weird. We take a posture when it comes to our Savior that is, that is ashamed of our transgressions and acknowledges that we have nothing to offer. And we just go to our Lord and we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you stop looking left and you stop looking right. You put everything you've got in the one that justifies The one that went and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and took all of your mess, all of your self-righteous muck and mire that you don't even know you have yet. Took it with him on the cross. And then, by the way, you go to the people in the world that don't know him and you don't go with condemnation, but you go to somebody Go to somebody and talk to them as if you're the person who found the well and knows where water is and you're just trying to get them there. Not as a self-righteous person, but as someone who found the answer that you can't find within yourself and you just want to share it. That's the hope that we have. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for the reminder that we direly need that every one of us is in some way a Pharisee in our heart. That we come to you with some level of self-boasting. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us. We pray that through your spirit you would point us to our sin and that you would remind us of our utter usefulness without you. Lord, that when we pray that your spirit would be active in pointing to us and pointing the ways in which we need to change and grow and be shaped, but that our reliance wouldn't be on ourselves and our abilities, but only on you. Lord, we repent of the times that we have thought ourselves better than others. We repent of the way that we compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters, both in an upward or downward way. Lord, we, we pray that we might look only up to you. That just like the tax collector, we would just pray, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Lord, we trust, not in our own righteousness, but only in you, that you would come and that you would make us clean and that you would make us a new creation and that your spirit would inhabit us and enable us to live a life filled with the things of you. That daily, each and every day, little by little, we would more and more turn to you be shaped by you, be broken down by you, and built back up by you. Be with us this week as we go out, and be with us this morning as we come to your table. We love you, 
and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.